Okay, children, don't forget, kiddos, you can go to Sunday school. Head up, you know where you're going. That way, no running. Please remain calm. Children, you may go to Sunday school through that door. A few of you go out through the back and into those areas, but most of you will head downstairs through those doors. That was Beckham. Thanks. Can't stay for lunch, but Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. More often. Oh yeah. Proud of you. Thank you. Oops. Sorry. with a bunch of cancer and so um, we need to lift them up I did get several of us and I know several of you have as well been in contact with Tim and so he sent me a text and said that they uh, they really struggled to get the right medication because of the insurance challenges and but they got it all worked out and so we've come a long ways um, she's on a pill one pill a day that's amazing. I mean, I remember when they just hit you with everything, chemo, radiation, the whole thing's all at once, and she's taking one pill a day. So we're going to stop and lift them up today because uh, they need our prayers. And by the way, they said to pass on their gratitude for us as a church to, for praying for them. Father, we do lift up Tim and Marie. And uh, uh, Lord, our prayer is really simple. Let the medicine work. And that's all we ask. Just let it work. Heal her, in other words, from this. Give them strength and give them grace during this time. Thank you that uh, we live in a time when we could even treat this. Uh, it wasn't very long ago and we couldn't. And we are so grateful. We're so grateful for you. So be very strong in their life and in their marriage and uh, help them through this time and just heal from this. In your son's name, amen. All right, before Mark comes, I just want to say a couple of, give you a couple of thoughts. You know, I've been, uh, last year I was a Christian, 40 years last year, that was my anniversary. And a good portion of that 40 years has been spent uh, building into people, mentoring, discipling, doing what I can to equip them. And uh, I love that part of Christianity. That's what God wired me for. So when I was in the interview process with the elders, I had already gotten to know Mark. We had had coffee more than once and had chatted about things and spent time and and I uh, talked to the elders during the interview process about what equipping would look like for Mark to send him to seminary. And, um, and it was a, uh, it's been real enjoyable watching it happen. Uh, 
So today is, I mean, I know that you're done with seminary, but today's a culmination of one of my dreams because I love equipping leaders. I just really enjoy it. Those of us that have had the privilege of teaching in higher education or in high school, for that matter, we know the difference in students. Some students come along and they just do the bare minimum. They're happy to get a seat and get on with life, may or may not learn anything. Other students uh, come along and you see a difference. And you see that they're there for a different reason. They want to learn something. I've had the privilege, which most of you have not. You've seen the evidence of it. But week in and week out in my office over here, sitting with Mark, uh, talking through what he's learning, sharpening each other, challenging each other, uh, having fantastic discussions. And all the way through that, I have seen that heart of his where he really wants to learn and enjoying what he's learning. And so, first of all, Mark, I just want to say, well done. Well done. That's right. It's hard to describe the pride that I feel. Uh, But also, I want to say thank you as a church. Uh, uh, Many of you, almost all of you, have participated in some way. Some of you financially, most of you through prayer, a lot of you, I'm sure, through encouragement. Mark will give his own thanks to you. But I just want to say thanks as a pastor. I love being part of a church that wants to equip people. And I have watched Mark change over the uh, last four and a half years, and his faith and his theology grow deeper and deeper. Um, And I've just enjoyed it. So thank you as a church for being that kind of church. Um, I brag about you all the time. Everywhere I go. I love you. I think you know that. So anyway, it's just really fun to... Mark, you now have a Master of Divinity. <laughs> have fun with it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah, and as they say, that and $5 will get you a cup of coffee at Starbucks. So, uh, no. I'm grateful to all of you in different ways and at different times for encouragement, for investment in a number of ways. And if nothing else, just being the kind of church that would say, we'll allow a pastor who's been on our staff for a long time to go and invest in an education process that literally takes, it costs you not just financially, it costs you a lot of time and energy. And uh, I hope that you can sense the difference of my uh, availability and and a little more of a plug-in being around and not having to go and do the process. At the same time, I had a ball. Uh, There's a whole bunch of it that I'm going to miss, to be really honest with you. Um, I I actually grew an appreciation for millennials. I know, I know. I figured that would be your response. But I hung out with millennials all the time. I was the grandpa in the class, right? So that was the common thing. And I learned ways to engage and ask questions and interact and find out and actually go, wow, they've got some really good things going on. And uh, that was super helpful. But also just being challenged along the journey. And so I, I did learn to differentiate some things. Ryan, if you want to show this picture up there. So this is interesting. It's a copy of the Bible. Does anybody know? Notice right in the middle, (laughs) signed, I'm not quite sure what that means. I can promise you this, it's not signed by the author, and it's not signed even by the ones who wrote it in in its original form. 
it's kind of funny. It's a, it's a handout like an award Bible, and maybe that's why it's on there. But my son sent that to me, and he said, Dad, I thought you'd actually get a kick out of this, and I do. I have learned some things about the Bible. One of them is we don't have signed copies. We don't have any of the originals. We don't have any of that. But the Bible, of course, is the most amazing book in the history of the world. I can promise you this. In my journey, I did not lose any a sense of awe, any sense of wonder, any sense of value for the Bible. It multiplied exponentially for me. It did. At the same time, I don't see the Bible as a magic book. It doesn't have potions in it. It's not a, it's something that you wave like a talisman. The Bible is a collection of wisdom and of poetry and of narratives all the way through that tell us a history of God's engagement with man. And theology is as simple as this. It is, so what does the Bible initiate to give us information? And then what above and beyond the Bible have we been able to access that gives us information about the heart and the mind of God? What's his plan? Remember, he stayed kind of obscure in this whole process, right? Have any of you met God, like walked up and shaken his hand and probably not talked to him face to face? Moses Got some interaction. A few people got some insight. Most of us have not had that opportunity, right? He has kept himself, but he's revealed himself along history. And so theology is simply a matter of determining what does God have going on in this process. And my journey to study was to help sharpen that up. A bunch of people have asked me this question. Why would an old guy go to seminary? <laughs> you know, what in the world are you doing? Why would you actually go put that time and energy in? What's the point? What's your purpose? What's your end goal? And truthfully, my end goal the entire time has been to be able to be better focused, better equipped, better sharpened, have some ways to help you as well as help myself along the journey of knowing the heart and mind of God. Theology. That's why we study. But I'm going to do a couple things here today. First of all, I'm going to go through some stuff you might not have been able to hear because uh, when Jim was talking. But yeah, I've got some Greek notes up here. We are going to talk about that a little bit. And we're going to do an old-fashioned Bible study. So get your phones out, your iPads, whatever you've got. Reach in front of you. Get a Bible. Or it'll be up here on the screen. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to study that. It's page 964 in those Bibles in front of you, if you'd like to go there. And uh, we're going to look at the Bible for a little bit. Then I'm going to get a little abstract, and I'm going to tell you about some things that, like what really matters above and beyond that we can actually put the Bible into the framework and the context of that. And it helps inform us to really sort out the priorities of what really matters in the world what really matters. So, 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to read this. What I'm trying to illustrate is this. There is face value benefit. You're going to see and hear some things in here that will matter to you. I hope to be able to unfold a few things after that, that you'll say, wow, you couldn't have accessed that without... Why study? Some of it is because of the, what we can actually get from Scripture. So here, let's just read it. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. 
Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Here's his first illustration, soldier. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete, number two, illustration number two, does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. And number three, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. It may be one of the shortest synopses of the gospels that Paul puts together. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. For which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Ooh, I love that. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, here's a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot do anything else. He cannot disown himself. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's his fourth illustration. Avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. The Greek word there, gangrene. Interestingly, among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Their, yes, names will be named. Who have departed from the truth. They say the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are His and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, did you get some things out of that? I sure hope so in English, right? There's some face value things. But what I can tell you is, with study, there's a whole number of other contexts that give information to this entire passage. First of all, the history of the Bible gives you a context. Like, what is he talking about? What, who, to whom is he referring backwards? Second of all, the story of Jesus, which is implied in here. He mentions Jesus, descended of David, resurrected from the dead. Well, he assumes Timothy knows all the details of that, right? There's a context there. Another thing, there's a, a physical context. The city of Ephesus where Timothy, his protege, has been sent to be a pastor of a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was a main city for Rome in the Asia Minor area, Turkey now. And there was a, a number, uh, one of the greatest arenas, a lot of athletic events and competitions that happened there, a lot of, a lot of military events. The, the actual emperor would show up in Ephesus once in a while. That happened. So there's a context that's going on. There's also the whole issue within the church that is the struggle between the Jews and the Gentiles. How Jewish do Gentiles have to be? All of that is in the backstory, and it gives you insight as to what's happening within this passage. But there's a couple other things that show up right away here that in the Greek you can see that you can't see in the English. 
Let's go back. Go back to the beginning. We're only going to go through verse 15 to cover some things. But you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is one of 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 imperatives in the Greek. The imperative is a command. It's not, now, would you say to someone, well, be encouraged, be strong, and have it as an imperative? I wouldn't, but Paul did in this case. He's saying, suck it up, buttercup. <laughs> okay? Get with the program. Be strong. Don't be weak. And he says that with force that you can't hear in the English. There's a number of those in here. Right following, there's another one. Entrust these things to reliable, faithful people in verse 2. Would that sound like a lot of force to you? It's an imperative in the Greek. In other words, I'm counting on you. This is what you do with your own strength. You entrust it to others. The truth, you entrust it to others, to reliable people. That's your job. That happens a bunch of times. I'm not going to call them all out, but just so you know that that happens in the Greek, we can pick that up and bring that emphasis to you. That's part of our job. Second of all, there are words all the way through here. In the passage between verse 1 and verse 19, there are 24 words that show up that either only show up here in this passage or show up less than five times in the entire New Testament. You have no way to pick that up in the English because it's translated into the English. There's nothing wrong with the English, by the way, but you're missing some things. In fact, when you see this passage and the way that Paul did it, he created some words that show up in this passage. He invented them. They show up nowhere else. Paul did this, not infrequently, to bring emphasis to things. He would take words and compound them together and piece them to where you, he would say, this is what I'm trying to do. It would bring emphasis right? It's crafted to say to his young pastor, okay, pay attention here because this is not just simplistic language. I've taken my time and word by word put this passage together to you to encourage you. The first one is right at the beginning of verse 3, join with me in suffering. It shows up here. It shows up at the beginning of the book in verse 8. So he said it twice to Timothy. Nowhere else does it show up. That's it. He created this to say, get involved. Now, is suffering a new idea? No. But Paul puts a special word together to say to Timothy, look, we're doing this together. We're doing this together with Christ. We're doing this together. And you communicate that to your people, to your faithful men and women, which is included. Um, there's others. In verse 4, he says, you know, don't get all tangled up in the civilian affairs. It shows up here. It shows up in 2 Peter chapter 2. That's it. It says, okay, but you, no one who serves as a soldier gets entangled, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Another complete word that Paul invented to communicate. This is not just somebody that you show up at boot camp. How many of you went to boot camp? Let me see your hands. Yeah, this guy right here, a couple of you. As time goes by, fewer and fewer people are boot camp people. But you show up at boot camp, you get a CO, right? It's not like you get to pick your CEO. This communicates something different because this says the, P the CO picked you as a soldier. You've been hand-selected. And that happened at two levels for Timothy. Paul selected him, 
And Christ selected Timothy. And he says, so as a good soldier who's been hand-selected, you now have the mindset of saying, boy, with honor, with dignity, with duty, with service in mind, I'm going to do my best for my CO. That's caught up. We'll hear about it again here in just a few minutes. Other things that show up in here. Uh, verse 5. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete. The Greek word, athlete. It's, we co-opted the word from the Greeks. It shows up here at the beginning of this verse, and it shows up at the end of the verse, and it's never mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. Paul is using it because Timothy sees what's happening in the competitions in Ephesus. He's got a special scenario there that Paul's hearkening to. And there's more things that go on in here. There's a couple more that I want to pick up for sure. Um, in verse 9. If you've got there, we'll go over to verse 9. I am suffering, Paul says, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Now, you know the story. Paul's in chains somewhere. This word criminal, though, is so unusual, it shows up in one other place. In Luke chapter 23, when Luke is describing the two criminals on the crosses on either side of Jesus, it's the only place this word shows up. A coincidence? Maybe, probably not. Because Paul has used other words all through his letters about being a chained one. But here, he refers to himself in a way that hearkens back to Jesus being between the criminals. You hear what's in there? You couldn't pick that up in, in any other way. Then there's that great poem that's in the middle. That's probably a creed where it says, here's a trustworthy, a faithful saying. Paul uses it at the beginning of the book too. If we died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign with him. If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he is still faithful. What's the emphasis? Endurance, be one who endures. Model that, teach that. At the same time, endurance is dependent on Christ. He's the faithful one ultimately. They may have used this, we don't know, but the way the structure is in the Greek, it's a creed. It's a statement. It might be lyrics to a song. It might be something that they came up with in Corinth because that first phrase is also used in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That's the only other place that it comes up in this formula like this. It may have been something they invented in Rome. We don't know, but it's likely something they used maybe when they were baptized or so forth as a creed, as a creedal statement. I'll go to verse 14. So these things, he says, keep reminding God's people. Um, those are both of these things. The reminding is, is a sense of witness, give a witness to it. It's got that same sense of the imperative. The Greek has this very interesting thing with verbs. Um, how many tenses do we have in English? You should know this one. Three, that's the right answer. And they are past and future. They're time-oriented, right? They're related, they're temporal would be the, the description of that. So even though present is kind of a nanosecond, it's not a very long thing, but present in our English is a little broader concept. It's kind of in the now-ish, today-ish. Past was before future is yet to happen. Greek has far more nuance in, in, in the things that it can communicate to you. It can actually not use any time if it wants to. 
It can literally say, that's a completed element that is done and finished. It may have, may have happened in the past. It may happen in the present. It may happen in the future. It may happen often like that. It also could be something that's got some continuity to it, a sense of ongoingness to it that may transcend time. It may have a sense of future surety that says that's completed, but it's in the future that it's actually going to be completed. So you can count on it because it already is as if it's already happened. It can also zoom in, say, stop the film, pay attention, and look really hardly at this. It also can back way out at 30,000 feet and look at the whole scope of everything that's going on. Greek has all of these nuances that English does not have. We can pick up on that, having studied, and we can communicate that. By the way, Hebrew has a lot of these same elements in it that has options for us. Now, after it says this, it says, Don't argue about words. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. Paul absolutely invented this word. There's no other place that this is up. Um, not in any other Greek literature, nowhere. He says, look, the words matter, but arguing about the words, nitpicking about all of the details. Maybe he's talking about word order. Maybe he's talking about, we don't even exactly know 100%. It's probably related to what Hymenaeus and Philetus are doing, because that shows up in this same passage, as they're saying, look, if we study the words, the words tell us, Ooh, there's magic in the words. And the words tell us that the resurrection has already happened. Jesus has come back and you missed it. That's what they apparently were saying. Don't get all caught up arguing the words. Paul selects and invents a word to tell Timothy that. Then immediately after, why? Because it's not profitable. It doesn't produce a profit. Another one-time appearance of this word in the whole New Testament. He connects words together to emphasize, to say, this is an economic word that says it doesn't produce anything profitable in the outcome. And in fact, it produces something else. And the, the, part of, the word here actually in Greek, listen, see if you hear anything remotely like English. Catastrophe. That's what it produces. We have co-opted it. We took it out of English. But it is that sense of, in literal sense, it is it flipped the tables over. If you sit around and argue about words, it not only doesn't produce a profit, it destroys everything. It's a catastrophe. Again, another word that Paul pulls in here, we derive our word out of it, but it adds this emphasis. There's a number of words Paul could have used there to describe this. He carefully crafted this out and says, don't do that, but instead, verse 15, do your best. That's an imperative. It's a command. The, Greek, the English gets it great there. To, as one who is faithful and approved, remember the soldier back in the discussion, you're a, an approved soldier, but now he takes even to another illustration. It's, it's one who has no need to feel shame about their work. That's the only time that word shows up in the New Testament. Again, Paul selects it on purpose. And when you connect it to the next participle, it's a very interesting word. It's, it's the word that actually is 
orthodomunta, and it's where we get orthotics or orthodontists from. And it means to, if you're a skilled laborer, you have the capacity, you have the tools, you have the training, and you can very accurately re-straighten and align things. You can cut where it's supposed to be cut perfectly following the pattern and align it so that it produces the correct outcome That's what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do with the word of truth. Can't get all that in English. You just can't. You can't. You could say, well, study to show yourself an approved worker. Okay, but you don't get all of that. And Paul crafted it out. What I love is that the illustration of what Paul did is exactly the content that he's saying to Timothy. He's telling Timothy, this is what I want you to do, and I'll show you exactly what I mean. I'm going to cut this cautiously, carefully, accurately. I'm even going to put words together so that it shows you how that this works. That's part of why we study. Now, the interesting thing is that the outcome, hopefully, is not just so that you can cut words and then know how to parse Greek sentences. Sorry, Jim. I know you were hopeful that all I would be able to do is parse Greek. But no, that's not the outcome. Yeah. The outcome is actually so that we can focus on what really matters. We can prioritize issues. Now, what really matters? Isn't that a question? You could have asked 20 questions out of that passage. But isn't this the real question? What really matters? Does happiness really matter? Our culture tells us that all the time. How many parents have I heard say, I just want my kids to be happy? Is that what really matters? Is, is it uh, freedom? Is it equality? Equal playing field? Is it health? Just what really matters about life? How do you know? How many times do you hear things, see things in media or whatever, and of course they're trying to draw a value system to tell you, well, this really matters in this case, and this doesn't really matter. How do you know? Have you ever wondered why we even care? (laughs) Why do we care? Why do you start out life asking, like, why am I here? What is my purpose? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to walk? Who am I supposed to hang out with? Where should I live? What should I wear? For crying out loud, should I listen to country music? The answer is no. No, I'm only messing with you. I'm only messing with you. But what should I do that defines who I am? And immediately it gets existential. Immediately, I want you to do this. What really matters? How many of you have your phone with? Get your phone out. I don't have my phone. If you've got it, I'm going to give you permission right now. Get your phone out. Find that Google thing that the kids use these days. It's called Google. It's right on the front of the, usually on there. In the Google search, type in Hubble Images. How many of you have looked at the images from the Hubble Space Telescope anytime recently? Yeah, I give you permission to look at them the rest of the time because they're amazing. It was one time in history 
there was, there was another time that this happened when Galileo went from using the naked eye and he put a telescope up in front of his eye. He multiplied by 10 his capacity to see into distance. The only other time that ever happened at that scale was when we fixed the Hubble Space Telescope. If you remember, they had to go up and fix the optics because it was broken. But once we got it in line, what you see is unbelievable that goes on in our cosmos. The numbers, the distance, the systems of things that work pulling together to create planets and stars and galaxies and everything else. There is in our universe a constant set of things that work in tension with each other. They are inseparable and necessary to work together. At the cosmic level, matter and energy is something that has been going on in exchange forever. Gravity affects that. Light affects that. For crying out loud, the basis of the laws of our physics are dependent on heat exchange, thermodynamics. It, there's a constant pull between dark and light. There's a constant pull between hot and cold. There's a constant pull between gravity and matter. And it's always going on. It's not reduced. It's not resolved. We as humans always see those things, those tensions, and we want to resolve them. We want to fix it. We want to somehow understand it. That's fine. But what's interesting is if you take those macro images and then shrink them all the way down to the micro level, the way that atoms work, the way that quantum physics work, there's a lot of things that work very much alike. The math is elegant and beautiful and, and coordinates. There's other things that do not work with each other at all. How can these things even exist together in the universe? We don't know. But there's these tensions that are always working. There's a constant set of tensions that work in just existence. And we feel it. Fascinatingly, we have a theology, Christianity, that lines up with that idea. If you wonder, okay, you just look on our planet now, and you go, okay, we have uh, economics. There's wealth, and there's deficiency. Should we equalize all of that? Should we resolve all those tensions? Is that helpful? Is that not helpful? We're always asking those questions. There's power, right? These guys have they have strength, they have numbers, they have technology, they have capacity. These people don't. We're always trying to figure out what's the tension? How does that work? There's good, things that we perceive as good, and then there's evil. And we're always saying, well, wait, shouldn't one of those things win all the time? Have you ever thought about this? Stop here. If you didn't have the contrast between those two things, you didn't have a contrast between light and dark. If you didn't have a contrast between good and evil, if you didn't have a contrast between love and disdain, what would either of those things even mean? What would it even mean? The system of 
contrasting things that work constantly in tension with each other is how our universe relationships if you know about relationships they are rife with tension all the time between because there's competing values there's competing perspectives that's how the world works that's what's going on around us the christian theology the doctrine of christianity aligns with that experience in the universe. Some of the, the great religions of the world have tried escapism. We'll say, well, we want to reduce the tension by getting away from it all. Go someplace else that's a better preferred experience. Buddhism, others, right? That's not what Christianity does. Some have tried to control it with legalism. If you will uh, follow all these rules and do all these things, if you line up in the right way, then God basically will serve you the way that you want. And the universe will work for you. That really doesn't work very well either. By the way, Christians have tried to import some of these details into Christianity all along for 2,000 years, but it's not at its core level. Legalism is not true. Determinism is the other idea. Well, it's all just preset somewhere. It's all just going to happen the way it is. It's random selection. There's nothing we can do about it. And, and it's just how it is. Karma, right? It's, it's just what goes on. Actually, none of those things align with our experience in the universe. Our experience in the universe tells us things are always pulling. Pain and suffering pulls against joy. Right? Flourishing. Is that a fail? Is that outside of the purview of the heart and mind of God? Or is that part of the heart and mind of God? And I'm going to tell you right now, the more you study Christianity, Christianity aligns with the way the universe works. God came to us and He said, in a self-revelation, He said, I'm a singular, a mono, and I'm a trinity. That doesn't work. There's a tension that pulls there. It's pulled since our first thought of that idea. God has presented himself to us in a human form through Christ. I am God and I am man. We've debated that for 2,000 years. How is that possible? The tension is never going to reduce or resolve in that equation. God says, I'm in charge and I have authority and I have complete autonomy over the universe. And I give you personal choice. So much freedom and personal choice, you can end your own life. How do those two things work together? The tension pulls. It aligns with the experience of the planet and of the whole cosmos. All of the things keep saying to us, God's far away, He's imminent. All of these different doctrines actually tell us this is how the world works and actually the theology of Christianity aligns enough to say, huh, maybe this God is actually the God who knows how this works. Maybe pain and suffering pulling against joy and flourishing was part of the plan. Maybe sin pulling against righteousness was actually in the design. It's not a fail. It's not an af it is a fail from the standpoint of, of the beauty of things, but it's not an afterthought to God. Christianity uniquely, the more you study it, the more you realize 
that it actually gets at what really matters. It gets at it. It gives you the opportunity. And as you start asking the questions beyond just how does this work or what is going on here, which is hard enough, complicated enough, but you get to the place of why. Why is it like that? Immediately it demands theology. Immediately. It takes it outside of the scope. Every scientist who's honest will tell you, we can tell you that this is the way that these things work. Why it happened that way in the first place and why we find ourselves in this position, we can't answer that question. It's not designed to answer that. Theology is. Theology can take us into access. So maybe God does these things to keep us from being self-sufficient beyond a certain point. He values us. He honors us. He gives us so much capacity, but our frailty is always pulling in the tension the other direction. Why? Maybe God has it that way on purpose. I think He does. I think the more you study, you'll see that to be true. And so, I'm just saying here, as one who has been able to study, get more information, look at the history, look at the the thinking. Look at the great minds who have considered, as Paul told Timothy, stop, consider, chew the cud, do the work on this thing. Do, study, work hard to show yourself as one who is worthy of the calling to which you have been applied. I would like to say, I encourage all of us, first of all you on a personal basis, don't take the easy way and expect things to just hit you in the side of the head. Do the hard work. Look at the science. Look at the math. Look at the theology. It will not scare you away. It does not have to. Second of all, I encourage us as a church to please continue to be the kind of place that promotes this. Why has theology been excused from the educational process in our country? Why has that happened? In a, in a place like Summit County that is so highly educated and so, has so much capacity and so much of a burn to be educated, why would we exclude that discussion? Could we bring that back into the conversation? Can you do that? Can you do that on a personal basis? I bet you can. And I'm hopeful that we as a church continue to be the kind of place that says, this is part of our DNA, our makeup, our value system. We encourage, we build and foster more study, more work, more of the energy that it takes, and to prepare people to be about the business of knowing the Greek, knowing the Hebrew, knowing the history, knowing the great thoughts about God. I encourage you that way. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, really why I studied. I have been very encouraged, very challenged, and moved. And I am not through learning, that's for sure. But I hope that you will uh, take what you've done through me and through this church to facilitate that for me, which I am so grateful for, and that it will be an enhancement. We will um, move forward. We will continue to be part of the discussion. We'll learn of other ways to do that. Encourage the people here, Lord, to take their own 
time and energy to invest in study, real study, and to uh, be a part of the story for others to do so as well. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, ushers, if you would come.